morning. The second reading today is from Galatians 3, 15 to 29, under the overall title of The Law and the Promise. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Therefore, this faith came. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. That is the word today, the law and the promise. Thank you, uh, Clive, uh, for reading God's word. What a, what a section of scripture, right? Uh, we need God's help to understand it, and most, most importantly, uh, to be able to apply it in our lives as well. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to lead and guide us in this word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you bless uh, this word to our hearts this morning. Help us to understand uh, this passage that's before us. Um, so many aspects of it, Lord. We pray that you will give us uh, uh, attentive uh, ears, uh, receptive hearts, Lord. I pray for myself as well. I humble myself before you this morning and your precious people here and pray for your spirit to do his work amongst us in Jesus name. Amen. 
Well, friends, this morning, if you are, if you are a visitor here, uh, and to those who are regulars here this morning, we know that we are continuing our series of studies in the book of Galatians. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses chapter 3, 23 to 29. I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open to this passage. Um, it is a passage that deals with lots of uh, aspects here, as we see. Uh, it is a challenging passage as well, uh, chapter 3 in Galatians, the latter part in particular. Well, last Sunday we saw how God made a promise to Abraham that he would make a mighty nation from his descendants and that he would give him so many children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We also looked at the purpose of the law and in particular the Ten Commandments in relation to the promise God made to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was that his offspring would outnumber the sands of the sea, Genesis chapter 12. He also promised Abraham the land of Canaan. And so it was hard for Abraham because God waited until Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 before Isaac was born. And so Abraham asked God the question, how can I know that I will gain this position of this promised blessing, Genesis chapter 15, and by the way, we will have Genesis 15 read tonight in a study of Romans. A good question, and God tells him, tells Abraham to do something really kind of weird as well. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all... Uh, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And in the days of Abraham, this was how covenants were made, and each covenant keeper would walk in between the halves of the cut animals to seal the covenant. What a way to seal a promise, isn't it? That you cut the animals and you walk in between. And this was a reminder to them to those who made the promise, to those who made the covenant, that if they broke covenant, it meant that the person who breaks the covenant would deserve to die just like the animals did. What a challenge. But the amazing thing here in this covenant that God made with Abraham was that Abraham did not actually walk in between the cut animals. Instead, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And the only thing that passed in between the cut animals was this. This is what we see in Genesis 15:17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What is this strange fire? What is this strange significance here? You see, friends, it was God who passed through. And we read in Genesis 15, 18, that on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And so the promise that God made with Abraham was a covenantal promise that was actually sealed by God himself. It was only on God. God alone would ultimately ensure the success of his promise. So we get the picture here, don't we? This is not about Abraham. This is God covenanting himself 
and saying essentially this, if I may use the term, that is essentially saying, if I was to break promise, if I was to break the covenant, then let me die. That's essentially what we see in the bigger picture. And so God is putting himself out there and making a covenant promise and saying to Abraham, you can trust me because if I break my promise, then this could be for me. What a picture, isn't it? And what an encouragement for us to know that how serious God is with his promises, that he keeps his word. Yeah? We can stand on the promises of God. And all that Abraham had was God's word of promise to him. And this was enough for him. And so when we speak of the promise, friends, as we saw last week, the promise was simply the promise given to Abraham that God was going to send a redeemer. The promise is that God made to send his son through a particular descendant of Abraham, the seed, as the blessing to the world. Did Abraham believe this promise? Did he? Yes, he did. Abraham believed it and God said, you are righteous. He trusted God and on account of his faith alone, God declared him righteous. And so in our text today, 23 to 29, we see further the matter of the works of the law and the promise of faith. Why the law? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Now, the Ten Commandments didn't come um, for 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. And now we know, friends, that apart from the Ten Commandments, there were also, as we know, hundreds of other laws that God gave to his people, what people could eat or not eat, what they could touch and not touch. There were also the ceremonial laws. There were laws about uh, how to conduct all temple sacrifices, special holidays to observe. God actually laid so many laws on them to let them see that no person could keep all the laws. <laughs> right? So many of them. And the point is that all the Old Testament laws pointed to the coming of the seed, to the coming of Jesus. And so we read in verse 23 that before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law, verse 24, was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And so Paul is giving us two illustrations here. One to make the point. One is the prison and the other one is the tutor. All right? So I hope you're following me in the scriptures, right? The prison. The coming of faith here means Christ. I think that's my understanding here, who is the object of our faith and is identified with faith. And Paul says we were held in custody under the law. You see this word, we, we see here that the law is a guard. The word that is used here is the word to protect by a military guard either to prevent hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city um, from, from coming in, or from going out, sorry. To protect by guarding, by watching and guarding to preserve the, the place. It means to be held or protected by military guards, to be locked in. Now, we don't see that so many times in our nation here. Yeah? 
But uh, growing up in Sri Lanka, it's a drive past uh, many army barracks. It's very kind of easy here in Australia, right? But you could never enter into an army barracks in Sri Lanka. No way. The guys are standing there with their AK-47 guns pointed out, and they are ready to fire. Right? They are guarding. They are protecting. No, no messing around with these guys. They are ready to pull the trigger. You got to understand Sri Lanka was going through an ethnic uh, war as well. So this is the picture here. It means to be held or protected by military guards. There is no freedom here at all. It so what, what Paul is saying is this, it imprisons the individual. There is no way of escape. The law captures. There was no way to get out from under the law. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. They always thought that they had kept the law perfectly. Didn't they? Right? And little did they know that they were imprisoned by the law. They thought of themselves as being good enough for God. And so Jesus challenged them with the law itself. And this is what he said, for example. If you look at a woman lustfully, then you have committed, what is it? Adultery. All right? If you look at a woman lustfully, so all guys, be very careful here. Yeah? Right? You know, where someone said to me when, when the, I remember many years ago, during a Bible study, he said to me, Chris, are we blokes supposed to walk blindfolded? <laughs> right? The point is, you know that. Sin is in the heart, right? The Pharisees knew well that they had broken this commandment. Or, for example, everyone who is angry with his brother already commits murder. So the Pharisees knew well that they had broken the Ten Commandments and yet they were imprisoned by it. They couldn't get out of it. And so Martin Luther makes this observation when he says, therefore the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not berate but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened and worn down and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. You see that? Imprisoned. Right? To make men berate but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of their sin they may be humbled, frightened, worn down. That was Luther's view. You see, friends, none of us have kept the commandments perfectly. We all fall short and so the law, so to speak, imprisons or confines people in order to drive them in the direction of faith in Jesus. And so we are locked in until it leads us to Jesus and we are set free by trusting in Christ alone. Otherwise you will be imprisoned by it. And so verse 24, and so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The word that is used here is the word pedagogue in the original language. Uh, that's the word for guardian. You see the Greek word, uh, we get the word uh, uh, children, we get, it's called pies. Could, uh, the genitive form is paidos, from which we get the English word, for example, pediatrician, coming from the Greek word paida. Right? And this, this word that is used, a combination of the two words, right? it means a paedagogos, which is a child leader. And so Paul talks of 
the pedagogue or the tutor, so to speak, who was a babysitter. You see, let me explain it this way. In wealthy families at the time, they were individually raised by what they would call the tutors or the pedagogues. And the assignment of the child leader at the time was to watch over and care for the child. One of his assignments was to take the son or the, the child and to deliver the child to the teacher. That was his assignment. Now, some of us would have grown in countries where we had uh, servants, for example. Right? I had, uh, after school, uh, I was so blessed, I had... Uh, my grandparents would send a driver to uh, a chauffeur to pick me up from school. How was that, eh? That was nice. Sometimes I would have the, 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 the servant boy, we might call him, he would come and take me home from school and sometimes take, takes me to uh, some lessons and he would sit there and wait till I finish and take me back home. Life was good, friends. I had to go to my grandparents' place. They had a chef in the house. Man, what am I doing here in Australia? Never had to do the lawns, never had to wash a car, it was all done. It's all good. But the point is, he will lead, lead us and, and, and take us. And, and, and the picture here is that the pedagogue would take this person, lead the child to the teacher. Because it had that role, and, and let me quote John Calvin. He greatly developed the teaching of Scripture on the law and its role. And for Calvin, he says this, The law reveals this, God's righteous character. It restrains evil in society. It functions as a rule of life to guide Christian believers in the way of life that is pleasing to God. And so Calvin says this, By exhibiting the righteousness of God, the law admonishes everyone of his own unrighteousness, convicts, and finally condemns him. And so Paul is now using this imagery here, the tutor's imagery. That is to say that the law is our tutor, the child tutor, and would lead to the main master teacher, Christ, that we might be justified, that we might be saved in his grace and mercy. So the law, friends, was never intended to save anybody. It was intended to deliver people to the one who could save them, to Jesus Christ. That is its purpose. You see that? So one, the law imprisoned gives you no way to escape. Secondly, the law is a teacher, a, a, a pedagogue, that is a, a one who is like a teacher who would lead you to the master teacher, Jesus. And that's how we have to see it. So in verse 25, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's the point here, isn't it? We've been set free from our sin. We are no longer under the bondage of the law. The law has done its work in the life of a Christian. And so when a person trusts in Jesus as his or her Savior, the law has achieved its purpose of being our guard and our tutor, right? Of being the one who has led us. And now, does this mean then, as a Christian, that we can forget about the law? Someone asked me this question only a couple of weeks ago. What about these commandments, Chris? Does it mean that I can live now a free life any way I want? Does it matter about my obedience to God? What do you think, friends? Should we obey this God? Or can I now that I'm set free? Man, 
I'm a free guy. I can live any way I want. I can do anything I want. I can do anything before God. I'm a free person. Well, was Paul anti-law? Was he? Does it mean I can forget about these commandments too? You know, Tim Keller was a Presbyterian minister. That's great, isn't it? And a, and a well-known author, he puts it this way. Um, Tim Keller. So Paul is indicating not that we no longer have any relation to the values of God's law, but that we no longer view it as a system of salvation. It no longer forces obedience through coercion and fear and rejection. The gospel means that we no longer obey the law out of fear and hope of salvation by performance. It's so important. And then he says this, but when we grasp salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and to be like our Savior. And the way to do that is through obeying the law. Do we get that? See, we keep the law then out of gratitude to God. We obey in response to His grace. We cannot keep the commandments only Christ did, but in gratitude to grace, we obey. And Keller, writing further, says this, once we've understood salvation by promise, we do not obey God any longer for our sake by using the law salvation system to get things from God. Rather, now we obey God for His sake, using the law's content, content to please and delight our Father. You see the difference, right? One is a guard that locks us in. One is a tutor that leads us to Christ. Now that we have known Christ, now that we have come to faith in Jesus, we obey in response to grace. What a difference, right? What a difference. It's like you might say to your our children, you know, could you please clean your room? Parents never say that to kids, right? We never say that, right? Come on. Uh, now, if, if the children are going and doing that by themselves and doing, oh, I'm busy, I'm doing this, that, everything, out of gratitude, that's fantastic. But if they're doing it just for the sake of, uh, it's another painful job. I'll just do it for the sake of doing it because I'm under the law in this house here. See what I'm saying? I mean, I get a, I'm not wanting to use young people here and kids in, in that way, right? I'm sure you're doing lots of things around the place. You see the difference. What about for a husband and wife in a relationship? You do things just because, oh, I'm married, so I've got to do this thing. It's a real pain anyway. I better do this. Or what's the difference when you have a relationship that says, hey, I would love to do this. You see the difference? Because I love my wife or I love my husband. I want to do it out of love. I obey this word out of God's grace. I want to live the Christian life to please my God because of what He has done for me. I want to honor my Savior Jesus Christ every day, the remainder of my days here on earth. I was saying to Rose the other day, you know, I don't know how many more days, how many more years we have to live, but the remainder of my days, I want to say, Lord, I want to honor you and delight in you in response to your grace and your mercy and your kindness. That's the difference. 
You see, it changes, friends. It changes, it ought to change our perspectives in living. It ought to change the way we serve and honor Christ. It ought to give us a passion for Jesus. If not, you have to ask yourself the question, am I actually in Christ? Have I experienced the grace that transforms my life? Have I experienced the powerful, amazing work of Jesus in my life? Or am I still under the bondage of the law? And so I calculate everything I do. And I measure everything I do for Christ and how I serve Him. Calvin said, promptly and sincerely, I give my heart to you, Lord. In response to grace. You see, that's the point, isn't it? In verse 26, we move now. We come to a tremendously assuring section in our text from 26 onwards. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So who is a Christian, friends? Everyone who comes to God on his terms, that is through faith in Christ Jesus, becomes a son of God. Becomes Elsewhere we see a child of God. There are no exceptions. And all who trust in Christ as their Redeemer and Savior through faith in Him become fully fledged members of God's everlasting family. Uh, John MacArthur says this, a Christian is one, and we should know this, who is in Christ. That's all. That's all. There is no such thing as a Christian who isn't in Christ. Did we get that? You see, we are not following the teachings of a man. We are in union with him. If that boggles your brain, you haven't heard anything yet. In Christ. And MacArthur says, that one day after the service, he was preaching after the service, a young man came up to him and said, you know, tell me, how can I become a Christian? And so MacArthur explained about sin, explained about the law, explained that we have fallen short of God's glory, that we need Jesus in our lives. There we are wretched and poor, and we need Christ. And the young man said to uh, John MacArthur, sorry, I, I can't accept that. And John MacArthur said, well, I'm sorry too. You have no place here then. Until you become wretched and poor, then you come and see me and then we'll talk. I mean, that's straight talk, isn't it? You see, do we see the need for Jesus? You see, the point is, are you, the point is here, it is in Christ. And so it rules out, friends, this entire teaching. We'll have our theological debate this coming week. I'm looking forward to it. There might be people who might debate the point of universalism, right? That if you are a, a person, then you are a child of God naturally. Is that what our text is saying here? Everyone, for in Christ, you are sons of God. Without Christ, you are not. Is that clear? So, for example, liberals speak of the fatherhood of God. Now, in one sense, we know the fatherhood of God over creation. We know that. Of God and the universal scope of the love of God in Christ, and hence all are children of God. Have you heard that? Everyone is a child of God. There's a fatherhood of God in the general sense, we know that. 
But of course, without faith in Jesus, no one can have an intimate relationship with the Lord. When we become sons of God, God is no longer our judge, who through the law has condemned and imprisoned us. God is no longer our tutor, who through the law restrains and chastises us. God is now our Father. And more about that next week, who is in Christ has accepted and forgiven us. We no longer fear him, dreading the punishment we deserve. We love him with a deep filial affection. Now, verse 27, have a look here. It talks about baptism. We see that in the passage here, in verse 27. Uh, what, is, what do we see here? You, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, what is Paul speaking of here? Is it reference to baptism? You see, Paul is simply referring, he, he, Paul is not simply referring to the outward sign of baptism by water. Okay, let me get it clear. Those who are believers, that is, those who come to faith in Christ, are to be baptized. And we know that water baptism is a sacrament that instituted by our Lord. Today, when someone is baptized, we use water. And the person is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a sign that the washing with water, just like we use water to wash ourselves, signifies the washing away and cleansing from sin. It is also a seal. Now the question, does that mean that your baptism saves you? Does baptism save us? No. This means, this is baptismal regeneration. I'm going into that this morning. A person does not become a Christian by baptism. Rather, a person is baptized on account of his or her faith in Christ. And what is in view here in our text is more than the sign of water baptism. Why do I say that? Because have a look here in verse 27b. For all you, of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with whom? With Christ. It signifies our union with Jesus. You see, Paul knew enough theology of the Old Testament to know that baptism is merely the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament circumcision. We dealt with that in Galatians. It is faith that secures union with Christ, while baptism signifies that union outwardly. Now, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. It's a fairly substantial quote there, but let me just... Unpack that for a moment. Okay, so union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the element of our union which Paul most extensively expounds. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to him at all points of his activity on our behalf. We share in his death. We were baptized into his death. In his resurrection, we are resurrected with Christ. In his ascension, we have been raised with him. In his heavenly session, we sit with him in the heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we will share in his promised return when Christ, who is our Lord, who is our life, appears. We also will appear with him in glory. What a blessing that is. United in whom? In Christ. We are one in Christ. United in Christ, connected to Jesus, united in him. We have to have that connection, right? Now, let me give you this illustration. 
Last night, I put a bread mix in the machine. You know, isn't that a lovely smell when fresh bread is being made every, uh, in, right through your house? Get the smell of fresh bread. Beautiful. Anyway, so I've been trying to make bread. It's worked out all right sometimes. And this morning, I went into the kitchen after I came back from my walk, and I got the beautiful smell of bread. I feel, oh, yummy. Bread, butter, Vegemite, fixes me up for the morning. The thing went off. It's time to open the lid. And I opened the lid, and the bread mix was just as it was. The smell was there, but nothing had happened. And I said to Rose, what happened to this bread, Rose? Did we make a mistake when we put the timer on? And I said, oh, I think I haven't put the, you, you know, the, the bucket in properly into the machine. I think that's the problem. Anyway, she comes back after five minutes. My good wife says, Chris, did you see this connection? It's supposed to be in the machine so that it actually does the job in the mixing of all these things, the dough. You know where that connection was? On, where was it? On the kitchen bench, on the washing rack. I had forgotten to put the connector in. And I said to Jessica while I was driving, that's a great illustration, Jessica. I'll use it this morning. You know, it can be like that in our own lives, you see. We've got everything going, but it's not actually connected. <laughs> and so also, I know this is a way of illustration perhaps, but it's fresh on my mind, just like fresh bread. But the point is, it wasn't connected. And the point is, friends, you see, in Christ, we need to be united. That is, we need to be connected. We can have all the trappings of all the yeast and the flour and everything, but if you're not connected, you see, you're missing the whole purpose. A union with Jesus. And then, you see what Paul says, we are clothed in Christ, where Jesus then is the garment that we put on. Now we put on, gar we put on the garment of righteousness and we stand freely in Christ. What a liberating and wonderful truth this is. Now think about garments that we put on, friends. The brand clothing that we wear, like Nike and Levi's and Adidas and Polo, Ralph Lauren and Gucci and Tommy Hilfiger. Right? And then you go to some countries and you can buy the exact, well, the replica. <laughs> I mean, well, oh, Adidas and Nike and North Face and all of that, but it's actually not the real thing. doesn't matter. The point is, we put on all of these branded clothing, right, and looks good, looks great, fantastic stuff. It's not like the Kmart things that we might get. But you see, what better thing to have? Nothing wrong in wearing these top brand clothing. Don't get me wrong. Fine. But you know that none of them can be compared to that of being clothed with Christ. Right? To be clothed with Christ is to have this Savior. So, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Jew or Gentile, Paul talks about race. It's not disputing different kinds of races in the world. Of course there are but we are one in Christ. The focus here is our identity in Christ. Our mission is global. Ethnicity in the gospel crosses all boundaries. Wherever we are, we are in Christ. The story is told of Mahatma Gandhi, who is considered the father of modern India. His birthday, October 2nd, is a national holiday 
in the second most populated nation in the world. The first one being China. All right. In 1891, um, after graduating law school in, 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 in London, uh, he, uh, he moved to South Africa to practice law. The racial system of apartheid was strictly observed in South Africa. And so Gandhi was fascinated with the truth and studied the Bible along with other religious texts. He loved the Sermon on the Mount and seriously considered becoming a Christian. One Sunday, he decided to visit a church in South Africa. And Gandhi's skin was a little brown and he entered the, the church. And a South African man said, where do you think you're going? I like to attend worship here, he said, Gandhi replied. The man said, there's no room for a person like you here. Get out of here, or I'll have you have some of my men throw you down the steps. Gandhi never seriously considered becoming a Christian again. This incident might have been one reason he would later make the famous quote, and that is this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I like your Christ. You see, friends, and who knows what India would have been like today if Gandhi had been welcomed into the church that day as a, and become a Christian. Yes, we have different colored skins, cultural backgrounds, but these differences do not define us, for we are one in Christ, as Ephesians says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These are peace and so forth, dividing the two, uh, who has made the two groups one and everything else. Slave or free, let me get through this very quickly, right? Slave or free, that is, friends, there are no economic divisions in the church, whether you're rich or poor. You are part of God's family, and then male and female, there's a gender division here. God made uh, us male and female. We got to get that very clear in the scriptures. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Right? We have a, a gender-fluid society today, very clear from God's point of view, male and female. But today, the push is to stop addressing kids uh, is to stop addressing kids according to their sex, even children at the age of five. I said, well, don't worry about your sex. They say, now let boys play girls and girls play boys in skits. Right? You heard of that, right? There's even the push for unisex bathrooms. And these developments tell us the mega shift in the way human beings view sex, sexuality, and gender. Now, I won't go into all of that this morning. So the whole transgender issue is now a major focus in the public arena. We live in a gender-fluid society, male and female. The point here is, friends, whether you're male or female, we are one in Christ received by him. We might have different functional roles according to God's word, but in Christ we stand equal. So women don't sit on one side. Imagine we come to church here and we say, blokes, you're on this side, and women, you're on the other side. I don't know where I'll have to stand and go this way and that way and that way and this way. See what I'm saying? We don't segregate, do we? Right? We don't do that. Because men and women are equal in the sight of God. There's an equality there. There's a dignity. There's a value that God puts on both sexes. 
And so verse 29, right? verse th- uh, as we see here, uh, um, Paul, Paul is saying uh, as we come here, let, let me say this, one ethnic, uh, our ethnic, social, and sexual distinctions continue to exist, but since we are in Christ, these distinctions do not divide us. They do not determine our standing in God's family. Therefore, we should see our oneness in Christ. And then in verse 29, as we wrap up this morning, Paul says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What a blessing that is to be a descendant of Abraham and to belong to Christ are virtually the same in Paul's mind. We become both when we entrust ourselves to Christ as our Savior. And John Stott puts it well. Every sinner who trusts in Christ crucified for salvation, quite apart from any merit or good works, receives the blessing of eternal life and thus inherits the promise of God made to Abraham. What a blessing. So as we conclude this morning, we are one in Christ. We are one body in Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will celebrate our diversity within this oneness. Because in Christ, we are the body of Christ here, right? And as his body, I pray that we will support, encourage, build one another up, uh, pray that we contribute to the life of the church, his body. And you ask yourself the question, if you're a Christian here this morning, how can I live my Christian life as being part of the body of Christ? For in Christ, we are together one in Christ. And what a blessing that is. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me ask you the question. Are you in Christ? Obviously, you're out of Christ. And if you want to be a Christian here this morning, I pray you give your life to Jesus because then you are in Christ and you are his. We belong to him and are part of his family, both global and local. What a blessing to be one in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that we've looked at so many aspects here in this word this morning. Uh, We pray that we'll continue to rejoice in our Savior Jesus. That we've been set free from the bondage of the law. We've been set free to serve Christ. We pray that we will obey and honor you out of gratitude in our lives for the remainder of the days of our lives here on earth. May we live it to please you, Lord. And if there's anyone who is out of Christ this morning, we pray that your spirit will bring that person to you so that that such a person can be in Christ and be a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen.